Hey everybody, it's Greg Martin here. Strap on in and put on your big boy pants. It's time to listen to Pop Goes Your World with Derek Myers and Chris McBrien. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 256, The Big Lebowski Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Back to a movie review this week. We've been looking back on films celebrating major milestones this season on the podcast, and Derek wanted to take a look at The Big Lebowski from 1998. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, so it should be good. Before we get to, uh, to that, though, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, I actually had a chance to watch a bunch of movies this week, a couple old ones, a couple new ones, and even a documentary, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, so I'm going to start. I'm going to start new. Uh, I watched the new movie starring a whole bunch of people, including Matt Damon. Matt Damon. There he is. There, there he we is. go. Okay. There we go. Had to had to pause for the drop. I knew that was coming. Uh, called Air. This is about the uh the Nike signing Michael Jordan and the Air Jordans and all that. Hence, the, the movie's called Air. It's uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, and a, and a slew of other people that you're going to recognize, directed by uh, Ben Affleck. It's available now on Amazon Prime for free. It actually came out in the theaters not that long ago, but uh, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. It's really good. Um, now, I read the book Shoe Dog, which is about Phil Knight, who is one of the founders of Nike uh, last year. And it's fantastic if you have the chance to read it. It's great. And uh, so Ben Affleck is uh, portraying Phil Knight in this, although he's only in it a small parts of the movie. Um, it's it's still really good. And and I think a lot of us uh, maybe are familiar with with. Michael Jordan's history and how he and why he went to Nike. Uh, there was that fantastic documentary series on Netflix, uh, The Last Dance, uh, which in that there was a whole part about him signing with Nike. So I don't think the story is going to take you somewhere you're not familiar with, but it was really good. And, and you had an all star list of performers. So quite good. Strong recommendation for me. Air um, available now on Amazon Prime. Then we're going to go into our Wayback Machine, 1952 oh, Turner wow, Classic Movies. I'm ready to go to bed one night last week, and mm -hmm. I said, hey, let's just do a quick run around the horn and see what's on TV. Just starting Singing in the Rain. So guess what I did for the next hour and 45 minutes? I sang along to Singing in the Rain and didn't get to bed till 1.30. I remember that was one of Yancey's favorite movies, too, when it's, he was on the it's, podcast. I mean, I'm not a big musical guy, but this is one of oh, my yeah. all-time favorite musicals. When we did our episode on top five musicals, this was absolutely, mm -hmm. I think this was my number one. This movie's just so good. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It like a lot of the humor still holds up, even though the movie takes place in like the thirties and forties and was obviously made in the fifties and movies from that era, even the performances are very different than the performances of movies oh, yeah. today. More theatrical. Very much so. And it's it's a song and dance picture. It's 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 literally one of these, you know, I, I called it a picture like it literally is a picture as opposed to like what you would see in today's movies. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. I mean, the all star cast thing with this, it's got Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and Donald O'Connor like this movie's just great. Uh, it makes me smile every time I see it. And I know all the words, to all the songs. It just it makes you happy to watch this movie. I love it so much. So. That one. Uh, then we saw. Uh, I'm going to jump back and forth. So then we saw another newer one. So from 2021, I I can't remember if we watched this on Amazon Prime or on HBO. It's called The Harder They Fall from 2021. It uh, stars um, Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba. This is a movie about cowboys. It's a western, but it's an all black cast, and it's based loosely on real people and real events. And it's not your typical cowboy movie. Like, you know, all we've seen for 60 years is all about white folks being cowboys. Well, 
here's a movie about people of color and how and what they did in the time of cowboys. It was really good. It was, uh, I thought it ran a little long. Uh, it's two hours and 19 minutes, but, um, it's good. And the, the way the director shot the movie, it's, it feels very modern and it uses a lot of new music, a lot of hip hop, a lot of rap, but it's done in such a way that it like really fits, even though it's an old timey cowboy movie. Mm. So uh, if you have a chance to watch The Harder They Fall, it was it was really good. I, I had a really good movie week this week. Uh, and then the last movie. Hold on. Movie, hold on. One yep. thing I just want to jump in. I think sure. it was in the 90s. Mario Van Peebles came out with a Western film. I want to say it was called Posse and it would feature okay. a whole black cast. Oh, yeah. 1993. Mario Van Peebles. You're absolutely oh, right. Yeah, I'm not 93. familiar yeah, I'm not familiar with it. I'm just looking it up now on the uh, the IMDb. Interesting. Um, and then the last one. Simpsons I, I, did it. <laughs> Simpsons did it, exactly. And then uh, then we go back to 1989 to see Paul Newman in uh, a, a loosely historical drama, uh, Fat Man and Little Boy, about the atomic bomb and the development right. of the atomic bomb. Yes. Part of the reason I wanted to watch this was um, – that this summer there's a new movie coming out called Oppenheimer and it's, um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Christopher Nolan uh, directs it and it has an absolute A plus all-star cast. It's already getting awards buzz, even though like it hasn't even come out yet. And it's obviously going to feature a lot of these same events. So this one that I watched from 1989, Fat Man and Little Boy, stars Paul Newman, stars Dwight Schultz, who people might remember mm -hmm. from the A-Team as Howlin' Mad Murdoch. He plays Oppenheimer in a dramatic role. He's really good. It's got John Cusack in a supporting role, Laura Dern in a supporting role, Bonnie Bedelia from oh, Die wow. Hard. She's in a supporting role. Uh, Natasha Richardson. It's got John C. McKinley, uh, who we all know and love as, uh, you know, the mean crotchety doctor from Scrubs. Um, it's got a pretty big cast and there's a lot of performers that you recognize that have smaller parts in it. And again, it's sort of historically accurate. I'm sure they took some liberties, especially in 1989. I'm sure they had to downplay some of it. So I wanted to watch it as almost like a little primer of what's going to be coming out in this Oppenheimer movie this summer, which is, again, I'm really looking forward to is going to get a lot of good buzz, but I don't watch trailers. So I'm trying not to ruin that. I just wanted to get a sense of what it was going to be about. Nice. And then finally, a documentary. Finally. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. It's funny, I, our producer Sloth uh, played back for me uh, one of the takes that I did on that uh, that song there. And one of the first takes I did was just so bad. Not that that one was good, because <laughs> my singing is so awful, as you know. <laughs> but anyway, nice. what was the documentary? All right, the documentary I watched was on Amazon Prime, and it's mm -hmm. called Judy Bloom Forever. Chris, as an educator and a parent, I'm sure you are familiar with the author, Judy Bloom. Oh, of course. Yes. Judy Bloom uh, is a very famous author of children's books. Obviously, she eventually wrote wrote books that were more for adults uh, later in her career. But she she broke One on the coming scene. out as a movie like now, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And that's why. So the, the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, right. which is probably one of her most famous books. It was one yeah. of her first books. I think it might have actually been the first book that she had published. Um it's being turned into a movie which is coming out shortly, which obviously the documentary dropped uh, a few weeks ago now for exactly that reason, because there's, you know, she's she's in the spotlight, her her uh, intellectual properties in the spotlight. So this was a good opportunity to uh, to present this uh, this documentary. I, I didn't read Judy Bloom growing up. I was aware of of her existence and I had friends that read her stuff, but mm. in, in my circle of friends, it was mostly the girls that were reading the Judy Bloom books and not yeah, so much the boys, yep. even though she did write books that featured male characters, tales of a fourth grade. Nothing apparently is a fantastic book, which I, again, remember seeing people had it, but I never read it myself. So watching the documentary was really educational for me just to learn more about what all her books, you know, sort of were about and, and how and why they were so important when they came out. And then apparently, especially in the 80s, she had to do, deal a lot with censorship in the U.S. And so there's a, a huge part of the documentary talks about her um, championing her books as well as other books and, and 
against the moral majority that came into power when Reagan took the presidency in 1980. But no, it was a fantastic documentary. And she just seems like such a great person. And the documentary uh, does a really good job of just presenting her as a real person who just seems so pleasant and so positive. And there's tons of testimonials throughout the documentary, uh, some from just regular people who wrote her fan letters over the years and some from people who have gone on to be authors themselves, uh, writers and directors and performers on the screen. It's it's just a really feel-good documentary about someone who has um, lived a great life and produced all of this great art and ha has so many millions, literally millions and millions of fans around the world and uh, so many people grew up reading her books. It's fantastic. It's called Judy Bloom Forever. It's on Amazon Prime. I, you know, if you're not a big documentary person, I still suggest give this one a try. You'll know within 10 minutes if it's for you. But uh, if you've read any of Judy Bloom's books and they they have, hold a special place in your heart, you're going to want to watch this documentary. So I had a, I had a great nice. week for movies. Nice. <clears throat> so, Derek, I want to touch base on a bit of a, a touchy subject here. OK, it has to do with plastic surgery. So, OK, I've noticed a few examples recently of female actresses who've elected to get plastic surgery. And I know this is this is an age old thing in Hollywood. And I, I'm, I'm not here to criticize these women for doing it. In fact, I guess it's kind of the opposite. So I just like to say, I think it's sad that we still live in a world where these women feel that they have to get plastic surgery to still get work in Hollywood. And like, you're, you're the one that's always mentioning how far we've come and how different things are now, you know, compared to back in my day, you know, and all that. But one thing that clearly has not changed is the pressure that female celebrities are clearly under to get plastic surgery and not just be able to age naturally, naturally, you know? So this, this started for me when I started watching that show Shrinking. Because you mentioned yes. that show, to, you know, the one that's on Apple Plus. A couple of weeks I, ago. It's funny you bring that up. I literally talked to someone an hour before we got on the air and I suggested they turn it on tonight and start watching it. I think it's great. It's a great show. So I started watching it. And it's really, really good. But what stood out to me was Krista Miller. So she's gone yep. and had plastic surgery and she's almost unrecognizable. And the thing is, I, I think I, part, like for me, I'm kind of hung up on the fact that I know her best from the Drew Carey show. And I, I, I know it's just a character that she played on that. But her appeal seemed to be that she had this kind of tomboy vibe about her, you know, and now she looks all weird. You know, and I'm sure a lot of people saw Madonna recently. You know, she was in the news. Madonna could walk right by me on the street. I, I wouldn't even have any idea that it was Madonna, you know. So, I, I, and the thing is, I, I understand getting a nip and tuck here and there. But Madonna's face is completely different. She's like Fred Ward in Remo Williams. <laughs> they, just, they just shaved off Madonna's mustache? That's a bad example. Because he didn't change at all, right? Even though he said he did. So, but but you know what I mean? Like, like, and I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not trying to come down on the women for doing this. It's a shame that they feel the need to do this. And I think that's on us as a society, right? Like, is it just misogyny at play here? I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't. Know. I, th I think I think you probably hit the hit your nail on the head with yeah. that one. But again, I don't think you and I are the right people to have this discussion. I mean, I'm sure it's the white men that have been in power forever that are are the biggest cause of this problem, and and it, you know forcing, uh, um, uh, you know body images, uh, body shaming on people over time that they feel they need to take drastic steps to to accommodate you know the the. The appeal of the perfect, most beautiful form. But. Renee Zellweger might have been one of the cutest girls I've ever seen back when I first saw her in Jerry Maguire. And now she's completely unrecognizable. Like, And I saw an ad for the new sequel for the Scream movies. And Courtney Cox doesn't even look like Courtney Cox anymore, for crying out loud. And, and one of the reasons I just want to bring this up is because after reviewing the movie for this week... Julianne Moore is in The Big Lebowski, and she's just let herself age naturally over the years. I think she is more beautiful now than she was when she was younger. And, and I get it. Not all women are going to age the same. You know, but that, that's okay. It's just a shame that, you know, I think a lot of people just don't agree with that. You know, yeah. so these women are like pressured into altering their appearance. And ultimately, 
they're altering their legacy. And let's be honest, if you're a celebrity, you're establishing a legacy. You know, that that's one of the things about creating art, right? Like, I mean, you live forever, you know? Derek, long after we're gone, people will still talk about this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we will live for sure. forever in infamy, you know? For sure, yeah. In infamy, that's for sure. Yeah, well, well speaking of which... Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek, did you hear that the latest sequel in the Fast and Furious franchise is now in theaters? I did. Yeah, it's called Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Oh. oh, man. I had fast. to buckle up for that punchline. <laughs> fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Oh, oh, man, I'm lame. Hold on, I gotta I got open a beer. I gotta have a beer. Saying, I need to take a big swig of mine. Too. <laughs> Let's have a drink because this is gonna be a lot of fun. Almost like a pirate radio guy during the war. Like, <laughs> I just go back and watch Meatballs and Stripes and Smokey the Bandit and all those shows that I love. Instead of playing a bar, they should have played like a minor league hockey arena. Yeah, he's a young man. Drive me crazy with this stuff. And that wasn't cool. Long duck dong. For those of you who have not been keeping count, I have. Jaws, Star Wars, and Raiders of the Lost Ark are my three favorite movies of all time. Holiday wrap. Yes, we're going to ring reggaeton for a horny day. All right. So this season, Derek and I have been going back and reliving movies that are celebrating major milestone anniversaries. And this time around, Derek wanted to go back in time 25 years back to 1998 and review The Big Lebowski. I had never seen this film. So it's always interesting when we review a movie that uh, one of us hasn't seen. But Derek, you could have picked any milestone year at all, any movie for that matter. So why did you go with The Big Lebowski? So a couple of reasons. Uh, I wanted to do 25 because although 20, 30, 45, 35 are all technically milestones, you usually measure the milestones by years, by, you know, five-year increments. 25 is is a pretty pretty big one, no matter what it is you're celebrating. 25 is usually considered a bigger deal than the 20th or the 30th. The 25 always seems to be the magic number. And we've sort of been tap dancing around this. So I wanted to hit the actual 25th anniversary right on the head. And then I look back to 1998. We've actually reviewed a handful of movies from 98 already. Um, or the ones that we were considering, you and I had both seen them so many times that we sort of thought, well, that sort of makes for a boring show if it's just two guys going on about how great the movie they think it is. So I wanted to try and find something that maybe you hadn't seen before or that you didn't have a, a passing familiarity with. And this one's this one checked that box. You would you told me you had never seen it. And uh, it had been on my my uh, short list of movies to watch for a while now. But again, this isn't a movie that everyone's going to love immediately, including myself. I didn't even really love it, love it the first time I saw it. It took a few viewings before it sort of warmed up for me, um, which is why I hadn't really jumped into it before now. But. You know, we wanted 25 years. This hit that mark. And uh, I, I just thought it was the right time. So that was that was sort of the the genesis of why I wanted this one. And because I, I know that this is a movie that can, is very polarizing and and can be very confusing upon a first viewing. So I thought it would make for a good discussion depending on what your outcome was. But I'll be honest, I watched this again with my wife on the weekend because we both love the movie. We've probably, you know, seen it 10 times or more. <laughs> but it's not one of those ones that you would throw on all the time. So I, I even asked her, I said, like, how long has it been since you saw this? She's like, probably about a year. And I figured for me, it's probably been between six months and a year. But we sat down, we watched it. We, you know, we we, we recited some of the dialogue because it's got some good quotes in it. And we laughed and, you know, a bunch of the parts. And then as soon as the movie's over, she literally turned to me and went, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. Chris hates this movie. <laughs> and I was like, I am not taking that bet at all. But uh, with that being said, Chris what did you think of the Big Lebowski? You weren't taking that bet because you, you thought I was going to hate it too, right? I thought you were going to hate it. All right, so here's my take on this. I'll be honest, I am not the world's biggest Coen Brothers fan. I find them to be really hit and miss. Like yep. No Country for Old Men, Fargo, both amazing. Raising Arizona, I just didn't get. Burn After Reading was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen it. Oh. But as a film buff, that scene in Blood Simple where the gunshots are coming through the wall, you know, when the shafts of light are coming through the holes, that's pretty friggin' cool. So coming into this movie, I didn't know what to expect. Like it could have gone either way. 
So, uh, you know, unlike my usual biased self, I tried to come in with an open mind. I thought this movie was pretty good. Oh, good. I'm glad. I, I said really that to after. Da- actually, really damn good to be actual. To wow. Be wow. And that's why I said to her, I said, well, you yeah. know, Chris, Chris is a film guy. He may, yeah. even if he doesn't care for the subject, may be able to appreciate it from that sort of artsy film point of view. And she's like, no, he's going to hate it up and down. So I, 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 for the first time in a long time, I'm going to be able to go to my wife and say, honey, you were wrong. Yeah, you should have taken that bet. And the thing that might surprise you, maybe I think I liked it not for the reasons that you might think. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to dig into this a bit tonight. But here's my major takeaway from this movie. Okay. It's less of a cohesive film than it is an attitude, if that makes yes. any sense at all. Uh, yeah. I don't, but the thing is, I don't think it was a conscious decision on the part of the filmmakers. I think if you look at the the complexities of the script and all the twists and turns and all these quirky characters, I think the intention of the Coen brothers was to make this cohesive film. But what they ended up with was two hours of an attitude. And that is 100% due to the performance of Jeff Bridges. Oh, no question. Any other actor, and this would have just been a loopy movie about, you know, a loopy guy caught up in a bunch of loopy pot plot twists. But Jeff Bridges sort of lifts it above all that and makes it kind of, I can't even explain it really. It's it's kind of like a, a hippie slacker roll through life attitude that is really the theme of this film. Does that make sense to you? It does. And yeah. I think that's a big part of why it's had the legacy that it's had, because from my understanding, this did not do well in the theater financially on its initial run. When it came out on video, though, it really started to find its legs. And so I was working at Blockbuster when this came out. And, it, and you know, when it first hit, it was sort of a slow burn. And then as word of mouth started to spread, it really picked up. It, we couldn't keep it on the shelves. When it finally became available as a sell-through product, like it was constantly being sold out. And as people started to get DVD players and such, like this always seemed to be something that people had in their very modest collections as one of their first, you know, 10 or 20 DVDs they would buy. It's one of those ones that people that like it really like it and they would just watch it again and again. I think partly because it's sort of that stoner culture movie. And if that's the kind of person you are, it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, smoke up and watch this movie. But but it's so much more than that. And I think exactly to your point, it's it's just the attitude of the character. It's the it's like, what do they say? It's 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 almost like a lifestyle. It's like you watch it and you're like just you're either in awe of what the dude can do with while doing nothing or maybe you're envious of like, hey, there's a guy that, you know, just despite the hardship, things work out or uh, or maybe you hate him. Maybe you're like that guy needs to get a job. So it's just you can look at it from so many different angles. Yeah. And I think if your biggest takeaway of this movie is that this is about this slacker dude, I think you've missed something because yeah. it's it, it's not just about him being a slacker dude. First of all, he's too old to be a yeah. slacker dude. So we've seen slacker dudes in other movies, you know, guys like Sean Penn and Fast Times at Ridgemont. I was just about to say, yeah, like this isn't the Pineapple Express or Fast Times where it's just, you know, you're doing Bill Murray in Stripes. Yeah. I always think of him, you know, mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges here is not just a slacker. Like he is way more than that. I, I think it comes out later in the movie. Like he, the, the scene when he's in bed with Julianne Moore and yeah. she asked about his past and he mentioned that he was a, the, a co-author of the Port Huron Statement. So he wasn't a lifelong slacker. He was part of the Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah. Right? And that group was pretty ambitious at the time in the early 60s. I was a poli-sci major. Back okay. In the day, so I got this stuff. But the, the, that group, it, like it just, it kind of petered out. Right. They were like all ambitious. They're going to change the world. And then they just kind of fizzled. And I think a lot of that was because a lot of the members started to grow up and they started to realize that they couldn't change the world, you know. Mm -hmm. So it started making me think at that scene of this guy is not so much a slacker, but maybe he's just somebody who's come to accept that the fact that the world just it is what it is. And he just might as well go along for the ride, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think the whole Port Huron statement thing was a really important part of the script because it helped you understand where this character came from, why he became what he was, 
And then that plus Jeff Bridges' performance is what stands out in this movie for me at yeah. least. That yeah. was my takeaway. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I mean, even though on first glance you might think, oh, this guy's a loser, this guy's a stoner, this guy's just a deadbeat, it, he does make decisions along the way that would indicate that he is a he he is a smart guy. Like he starts to put the pieces together about like what's going on. There's all these all these different plots and twists going on, and it's it's clear that you know even though he's probably either drunk on his white Russians or he's he's high from what he's smoking, he's he's not like a complete just deadbeat you know idiot. Okay. And, and although uh, he drinks throughout the film, like the white Russians are a big part. He you never see him drunk, right? You know, so I think that's an important thing, too. So, yeah. Okay, so so as far as the, the film itself, so it's obviously directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It, yeah. It was made on a budget of $15 million. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 1998. It was released in the United States on March the 6th of that year. And it made over $46 million in worldwide box office grosses. But to your point that you made earlier, it only grossed $17 million in the U.S., which put it at 98th place at the yeah. domestic box office. Although it did finish ahead of Blues Brothers 2000. Although that, that's not it, much of an accomplishment. Yeah, I was going to say, deservedly so. Oh, but God. Uh, God, that was, but it finished ahead of Krippendorf's Tribe. Oh, and, I've seen that. Richard and Dreyfuss. Basketball. Basketball. Oh, I've seen that one too. <laughs> yep. It also finished ahead of Twilight. Not the vampire one, though. No, the Robert Red, uh, the Paul Newman one. Yeah, the Paul. I didn't even know yeah. there was a Paul Newman one. I worked at Blockbuster, man. Oh, I watched dear. all of those movies in '98. As soon as it hit the shelf, we take them home and watch them. I've seen all of those. So, needless to say, The Big Lebowski wasn't exactly a huge hit with initially. Mainstream audiences initially, but it wasn't exactly a hit with critics either. I mean, it was nominated for a few obscure international awards, but nothing major. You know, it no. just, it just the movie just kind of came and went with little to no fanfare. Mm-hmm. And really, like you mentioned, it wasn't until years later that it's grown into this cult favorite. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and, and again, the the performers that are in this movie after this movie, they a lot of them did a lot of great work that sort of as they started to become more famous, people went, well, what else have they been in? And then you sort of forced you to go back and go. Oh, look who's in there. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's a good example. He's a great performer. He's got a very small part in this. Mm-hmm. And he eventually, you know, like four or five years later after this, he wins an Oscar and people are starting to go, oh my God, this guy's actually really good. What else has he been in? And then you start to look back at his work. Julianne Moore, again, she was in Boogie Nights the year year before. I think Boogie Nights was 96, 97. So she got this. And then again, over the next few years, she starts getting nominated for Oscars. She starts winning awards. And then people are like, what else has she been in? She's great. Where's she been all this year, all this time? And you go back and you find a movie like this. And I mean, John Goodman, that guy's good in just about everything he does. Steve Buscemi's another one. You know, he starts doing things. I mean, he's been a character actor his whole life, but he's on Boardwalk Empire. And suddenly it's this huge prestige cable show and everyone's going, well, let's go back and watch his previous work. So you've got these performers that are great actors, but maybe they're, you wouldn't necessarily at the time consider them A plus movie stars. Like, you know, if you said Tom Cruise is coming out in a movie, you're like, well, I'm going to see it. it's got Tom Cruise at the time. You said, hey, that new Steve Buscemi movie's coming out. You're not like, well, I'm going to see it because of that. <laughs> but now you look back and you're like, hey, this movie is Julianne Moore and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Steve Buscemi all in sort of smaller supporting roles starring Jeff Bridges and John Goodman. You'd be like, geez, with a cast like that, it's got to be good. I got to give this movie a try. And uh, and I think that that's sort of how people came to it. And that in the word of mouth, like the people that liked it really like it this is this movie really seems to be polarizing in that sense and and one of the things that i just i love so much about this movie is it's got so many little excellent segments that it works well on something mm-hmm. like youtube where you can just post here's here's a one minute segment from the movie it's got this great scene with these great quotes and this great performance and those are the kind of things that constantly get shared around on the internet and uh, so when i watched it this week it was you know so many of the lines we would be like oh that's where that's from like you know, you and I do this too. We, you, you make, you make a pop culture reference and everyone sort of goes, Oh yeah, that's a great reference. But you sort of think to yourself sometimes, I don't remember where that's from. And I say that all the time. This movie is like that for me. There was a ton of stuff in this movie that when I saw, I'm like, Oh, that's where I pulled this from. So no, it's good. It's really right, good. So, really so, like so you, you mentioned the cast and you mentioned some scenes. So let's dig into some of them. So let's start with the cast. So Jeff Bridges, like I mentioned, He's the best part of this movie. His performance oh, makes this movie what it is. Yep. And and it's funny because when I think about Jeff Bridges, 
I think about him looking like this. Yes. And, and not so much from this movie because like I had never seen this before. But mostly, like, this is also how he looked in 1976's King Kong. The remake. Oh, really? Yeah. The remake that uh, Dino De Laurentiis uh, made with Jessica Lange. He's got that long beard and that kind of hippie look kind of going on there. But this guy has done a ton of stuff. Like, if you think about, like, Starman and Tron, like, he's been nominated for seven Oscars. Like, it's crazy, yeah. you know? And, I mean, he's won one, you know? I mean, he, he won for Crazy Heart, right, in, in 2010. But, I mean, he was nominated all the way back to 1972. He was nominated Best Supporting Actor in Last Picture Show. You know, and then he was nominated in 75 for Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and, and, and Starman and stuff. So, then the guy's Hollywood royalty, too. I mean, his dad is Lloyd Bridges. His brother's yeah. Bo Bridges, you know, and he's done lots. I mean, he did the fabulous, fabulous Baker Boys with Jeff. So Jeff Bridges, you know, we cannot say enough about him, but I want to talk a little bit about John Goodman for a second. This to me is hands down the best role of his career. He yeah. was outstanding. In this he was really like, good. Outstanding. I mean, yeah. sadly, he did this the same year that he did Blues Brothers 2000. Uh, so let's just say that consistency ain't his thing. But man, was he ever good in this? I mean, you just believe that he's this sort of typical, gullible, American redneck bowler who believes in conspiracy theories and like waves a gun at <laughs> You know, like, and funny enough, I, I read somewhere that the, the Coens, they didn't allow any improvised lines to get into the script, except for one. When the dude calls Big Lebowski a human paraquat. Okay. Other than that, one line that, that they let in. Everything else was scripted. But the wow. thing was, to me, a lot of the dialogue feels like it's improvised. You know, I, yeah. I don't know if it's the pacing. They almost seem to, like, talk over each other at times, especially in the scenes with the three of them, with Steve Buscemi, because they're like, shut up, Donnie. <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know. I thought John Goodman was fantastic in this. He was great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't personally care for his character, but I, I liked it. Like I liked the mm. performance and I think that's the whole point of it. He's not supposed to be likable all no. the time. And, and I kept saying to Kay, I was like, we're watching and I looking over and I say, why would these two guys be friends? And, and then of course, after they sort of have a little spat, then the next time, the next scene, they're like lockstep. They're, they're doing whatever it is together and they're exactly on the same page. And it's like, Oh, that's why they're friends. Cause he puts up with his BS and then, you know, they move on and then he does something stupid again and then they move on. And it's like, oh, that's that's what friends are for. Right. So. So Steve Buscemi, it's always been amazing to me that this guy has been able to carve out like such a long career for himself. Like, like don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. I think he's incredibly talented and unique, but he's got such a, a unique look and the sound of his voice. It just doesn't seem like he's the kind of actor with a, with a ton of range. You know, like he doesn't seem like he's, he has the ability to play like widely different characters, you know, and he certainly isn't leading man material. And in this movie, he's kind of relegated to the sidelines. He's like kind of like a punchline at times. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. In a lot of the I, scenes. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly not uh, your traditional Hollywood handsome by any stretch of the imagination, but he's become such a great character actor. Yeah. You know, he plays heroes, he plays villains, he plays the supporting guy, he plays the the creepy uncle, he plays, in this case, is like, he's just one of these three guys, but every time he tries to say something, John Goodman is just right in him, you know, shut the, uh, shut the hell up, Donnie, and it's like, but just yelling at him, like, right in his face, and uh, Donnie just takes it, and it, so there's a fan theory online that, that Steve Buscemi's character of Donnie doesn't really exist, he's just a figment of John Goodman's imagination. Oh. It's like like a like a uh, schizophrenic something or other, and nobody else can see uh, Donnie, but everybody understands that that's just a quirk of John Goodman's character, and so they they ignore it. And there's only a but couple. But then of times. the scene at the end when he spreads his ashes, he yeah. got it. He got it in the dude's beard, so he yeah. definitely did exist. Yeah, so that's there are only there are only we were watching for it specifically this time through. There's only two scenes where the dude seems to acknowledge Donnie, and but you could. If you really wanted to read into that, you could sort of go, well, although he responds to what he says, it also could be a response to what somebody else has already said. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it is interesting that 
the dude doesn't actually talk to Donnie like through the whole movie, even though Donnie's there almost mm-hmm. the whole time. It's just it's this interesting dynamic between these three very unusual characters. Mm-hmm. Julianne Moore, I want to mention, I think she is one of the most beautiful human beings I have ever seen in my entire life. I don't know what it is about her. She just has this intangible charisma about her. And she started out in smaller, more like indie movies. Like she was in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Benny and June. I think The Lost World was really her first big mainstream Hollywood role. But Boogie Nights is obviously the one that made her this critical darling. Yeah, that's right. She was nominated for five Academy Awards. She's won one. I was going to say, she won one, though, didn't she? Yeah. Oh, yeah, she won. But but again, it was in 2015 for Still Alice, one of her, like, lesser performances. I would think a little bit more of, like, a, here's, a like, a, a career award kind of yeah. thing for her. Because, yeah. I mean, some she, of her other stuff was, like, was better. I thought, I thought Boogie Nights, she was great. Um, we should probably review Boogie Nights this year sometime. It's celebrating 25 years. Or, or, did, it, or did it come out in 97? Uh, yeah, I think it came yeah, out. Yeah, I think it came out this, before, but, uh, okay. But, so yeah, you no, but I agree. Julianne Moore is great. And she, she always, she always plays such interesting characters, right? So. Oh, absolutely. Um, so you were talking earlier about, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. To me, he was a bit of a standout incentive of a woman. And then he did Twister and Boogie Nights before he did this movie. And then he obviously went on to like have a critically acclaimed career cut short by his death when he was only 46, but he was nominated for four Oscars as well. And, and mm-hmm. he obviously won best actor for Capote in 2005. Yeah. That was one hell of a strong year for nominees too. Yeah. No kidding. He won Terrence Howard in hustle and flow. That year was fantastic. Heath Ledger, uh, broke back mountain Joaquin Phoenix, walked the line and David Strathairn for good night and good luck. That's a lot of good actors in one year. Oh, my God. Um, I think the thing that I liked the most about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie was his physical resemblance to the Big Lebowski. He looks like he could have been the guy's real son. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely... I hadn't really considered that, but you're absolutely right. I'm pretty... uh, That had to be a choice by the Coen brothers. Oh, for sure. They've got a pretty keen eye for casting and characters, and uh, I don't know, I just... just he looked like he could have been his son. Like that was a kept sticking out to me. So, well, anyway. speaking of lookalikes, we're watching the movie and halfway mm-hmm. through my wife turns to me and says, do you not think that Chris looks a lot like the big Lebowski? And I was like, no. And then the next scene we're watching, I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of a little, I mean, the hair's different, but I, I can see the resemblance. So for better, or for worse, we think that you look a little bit like the Big Lebowski. So David and, and Huddleston. And I'm not talking the Jeff Bridges character. Yeah, I'm you think I look like yeah. David Huddleston. Yeah. I always thought he looked like Fred Thompson. The yes. guy that used to be, he was a U.S. senator and they went into acting. He was in Law and Order. Yeah. He was in the one I just watched, Fat Man and Little Boy, at a small part. Yeah. So, so David Huddleston reminds me of Fred Thompson, not me. But the way he talks, his voice is so unique and recognized. Did you recognize him from anything? I, I honestly, re- I recognize him from an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Oh, no, he was in Blazing Saddles. He yes, was Olson Johnson. Remember, he was like, "What are we made of? Our fathers came across the prairies, fought Indians, fought drought, fought locusts, and we didn't give up by then. And by gum, we're not giving up now." And then later, when the black and the Asian settlers want some land, he's like, "Okay." We'll give him some land. Well, he doesn't use the word them. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but we don't want the Irish. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and everyone argues. They're like, no, no, we got to let everybody in. So he's like, ah, oh, prairie. Sh-. All right, everybody. <laughs> Jeez. I recognize him right away. And you think I look like him? Oh, my God. Oh, I didn't wife, see your it. Wife does? Oh. I didn't see it right away, but case I. Oh, we so. got to have a talk. I don't know about that. I want to talk about John Turturro as well. I'll oh, be honest, I am Jesus. not a huge fan of him. I He always rubs me the wrong way. And I, I know he mainly plays unlikable characters, kind of like you mentioned with um, John Goodman. Like, John you know, Goodman. Like, unlikable yeah. character. And then that's fine, because you can just say that he's a good actor. You know, you make you hate the guy, right? But I've never liked John Turturro in anything until now. He was fantastic <laughs> in this movie. Like, in the purple jumpsuit? Fantastic. Oh my god, he's got this like small part, 
and he doesn't really have a whole lot of screen time. But boy, does no. he make the most of it. His yeah. character had me laughing constantly when he was on screen. And it was it was a bunch of stuff all put together. So first of all, his, his name, Jesus, not Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. So that alone made me laugh because when you first see him, he's got the bowling outfit on, that purple jumpsuit that you mentioned. Yep. And he's got his name embroidered on his left breast. And I just assume when I see him... It's the Spanish pronunciation of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it's Jesus. And his accent and his mannerisms. And that could have been really, really crappy. Yeah. But it wasn't. He was amazing. Like his, his dancing and the voice and the way he's all, he's all cocky and challenging the guys. It's like, it's God, dude, it's bowling. <laughs> like, get over yeah. it. So he, he, I thought he was fantastic at this. You? And in that scene, they've got the um, the song, the Hotel California, but the Spanish mm-hmm. rendition and like the mariachi band style. And again, the first time I saw it, I'm like, this sounds familiar. Yeah, and me then, too. I was like, what is this? And, and then wasn't it until it, they said Hotel California. I'm like, yeah, oh my God, like, there oh, it is. Yeah, that's totally what it is. Yeah. No, that scene works so well. It's so <laughs> it's good. And just that creepy thing he does with his tongue on the bowling ball like that. Yeah, I, remember that was in the tra- I remember that was in the trailer and it's like we're watching it and my wife's like, oh, that's so gross. And I'm like, but that's the point. He's supposed to just be repugnant mm-hmm. and repulsive. And yet and then he then he strikes and then he like does the dance to the music. Oh, yeah. No, that's again. It's like a two and a half minute scene, but it's just so good. And John Goodman, I think at one point accused him of being like a pedophile or something. But you don't know what yeah. to believe because John Goodman is this conspiracy theorist guy. Yeah. So who knows what's going on? Um, also, uh, Tara Reid, I want to mention, I thought she was perfectly cast. Because that role called for like, it had to be an attractive girl. Yeah. But it also had to be one that was kind of dirty. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and Tara Reid just comes off as this kind of sleazy, promiscuous girl. Probably not a real stretch for her, maybe in the acting department. I don't know. But um, well, the scene where the scene where he meets her when he's leaving with the with he's leaving the Big Lebowski's apartment, he's carrying the rug. And then she's like you know, blow on her toes. She had to just apply the nail polish mm-hmm. and then she makes him the offer. And he's just sort of like, doesn't like the dude doesn't know what to do. And then she's, she's like for a thousand dollars. And then she says, she turns to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Brant can't watch her. He's got to pay a hundred. Right. Oh my God. I laugh so hard every time I see that partly because of the line, like it's just a funny line, but Philip Seymour Hoffman's reaction as Brant to that is just hilarious. And then they start leaving and, and the dude just turns back and he's like, yeah, I'm just going to go find an ATM. And it's just like, oh, I laugh so much every time that I see that scene. Also, I did want to give a shout out to the guy that plays the nihilist, Peter Storm. Yes. I oh. recognize him from Fargo. He was the guy that was putting Steve yeah. Buscemi in the wood chipper. In the wood chipper. And yeah. he was also in Seinfeld. He was? I don't remember him in Seinfeld. He was in the episode where George is trying to move the Frogger video game. Oh, I don't remember that one that he was, well. He was Slippery Pete. I remember like George was, was talking about the outlets and Slippery Pete yeah, calls I, them the holes and he's drinking milk and stuff. So geez. I remembered him right away. I, remember. I, I always remember him from uh, Armageddon. He was the Russian astronaut that they get off of the space station when they he go to refuel. He's been a working actor for like ever. Oh like, my God, he's in so much stuff. Like, like he just works and works and works. Yeah. Um, but great cast. You know, I yeah, think just so good. Here. So I asked you, does the movie hold up? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. 25 I, years I, later. Like I said, the first time I saw it, I didn't love it. I liked it. I didn't love it. But there was enough there that I wanted to watch it again. And, and so many people I knew loved it. And I found as I watched it a couple more times, I would be, I would pick up more details out of it and I would be able to like relate to some of the scenes a little more. And I found that that's part of why I like it is as I get a little older and as I sort of move more into the demographic of the dude, I, I could start to understand more of like what we were saying about his perception of the world. It's almost like he's just like, well, what difference can one man do? Nothing. I'm just going to just do what I want to do as little as possible, stay out of everybody's way you know, I'm going to go bowling. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, listen to my credence. I'm going to get high. I'm going to do whatever. It's just like, as I, as I get a little older, I start to be like, man, I, I could sort of see the appeal of that. I wouldn't necessarily do it, but, um, and you know, again, he's got a couple of close buddies. He's got his routine as a 20 year old. This didn't really speak to me at that level, but now almost 50 years old, I'm like, mm, 
you know, he might be onto something there. So, <laughs> in, so in no, terms I, of I it, think it really holds up. In terms of it holding up and like being dated, or I like how in the scene when the dude first goes to see the Big Lebowski and he uses uh, somebody uses the derogatory term Chinaman, and Philip Seymour Hoffman says that's not the preferred nomenclature. The term oh, is yeah, Asian American. Yeah, <laughs> that's when Walter's talking to him yeah. uh, in the in the bowling alley. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, so any scenes that stand out to you? One that oh. I want one that I want to mention. Yeah. I like when the scene when they're in the bowling alley and Smokey steps over the line. <laughs> yeah. And he says, he goes, Mark me down for an eight. And John Goodman calls him out. Yeah. And then John Goodman gets all worked up and he pulls out a gun in the bowling alley. And he's like flashing this gun around. He's like, Am I the only one around here that cares about the rules? <laughs> yeah. The, the rules. He pulled out a gun. Like, but what 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 I really love about that scene is we as the audience don't see whether he stepped over the line or not. So right. we have to decide, do you think he really did? And John Goodman's character literally saw him step over the line and is trying to uphold the order. Or do you think that like so many other things, in this movie, he's just off his rocker. He wants to make a scene and this is the way he's going to make a scene. I don't know. It can go either way. You can make the argument for either side of it. But I love that. This scene, as great as it is in the moment, has ramifications down the line of the movie where they talk about like later in the movie, he's getting on his answer machine and there's all the messages. And it's like, hey, I don't want to be a jerk about it, but I'm reporting it to the league. And then the league calls him back right. and they're like, we heard that the guy on your team pulled a gun. And then and it comes up again later a couple of times as well. So it's like <laughs> you have the one scene that you think this right. is a great scene. And then it's like, no, it continues to pay off throughout the movie. So. Yeah, I just love how he talks about the rules. Yeah. As he pulls yeah. out a gun. Yeah, um, I guess it is the United States. So, I mean, open carry in a bowling alley is probably norm down there. But no kidding. No kidding. Um, um, no, my favorite scene, without a doubt, yeah. my favorite scene is the um, the dream sequence when um, when he's he like uh, you've got the the song that what condition my condition is in, which I only recently learned was sung by Kenny Rogers, of all people. And uh, and it's like the the. Where he imagines he's in the porno. What is it called? The gutter balls. Gutter by, balls. Uh, yep. By uh, a treehorn production. Gutter balls. And then he comes out and he's dressed in the the maintenance man uniform that he saw on the screen when they were watching the porno movie earlier. It's like right down to the exact same tool belt. Because again, my wife turns to me and goes, "I never understood why he's dressed like a repairman in the bowling alley." And I'm like, "Because that's exactly what he saw on the porno movie 20 minutes earlier in the thing." And then he comes out and he's just. Like his character just looks like he's higher than a kite. It's just like the the facial expressions and the weird dancing and then the steps and and the choreography with the women dressed like the the old time Valkyries. Just oh it's so it's so out of this world. It's just so perfect for this movie where it's like, what do you think's gonna happen when he gets super high? What happens you think is gonna happen when he takes a bang to the head? It's like, of course this is what he's gonna dream of and imagine. It's just it's both awe-inspiring and hilarious at the same time i love it like and you can just find that clip on youtube and from time to time i've done it i'm just like i'm just gonna go watch this for a couple of minutes i think some of my favorite scenes involve john goodman when i think about it like when he's assessing what to do and he's like what we have here is a series of victimless victimless crimes mm -hmm. and dude is like what some yeah. girl just had her toe cut off like like dude and there's a kidnapping and everything else and then John Goodman is like, he's like the stereotypical American. He is what people in other countries think Americans are like. Yeah, I think you that's know, fair. Loud, brash, dumb, pulls a gun, cocky, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I love how he refuses to do any activity of any kind on Saturday. He's like, it's the Sabbath. Yeah. And dude is like, yeah. you're not even Jewish. You're Irish Catholic. Like, yeah, it's so good. And then... The thing is, though, he's this conspiracy theorist, but he actually gets a few things right. Yeah. <laughs> because it, and throughout the movie, he keeps saying, these guys are amateurs. They're amateurs. But the thing is, he's right. Because yeah. the nihilists are a bunch of bumbling idiots. I mean, they bring a ferret <laughs> to try to intimidate the dude. So. Oh, that's a funny scene where he's in the tub and they just drop the ferret yeah. in. Like, again, had to laugh. No, it's uh, the scenes in the dude's apartment, like all the scenes in the dude's apartment are great. They're either really funny or really interesting. And it's just like, oh, no, like even right at the beginning where the guys break in and they like they're they're jamming his head in the toilet. And then the guy's like, 
you know, isn't this guy supposed to be a millionaire? And it's like, he looks around and he goes, does this look like I'm a millionaire? And then they're all like, oh yeah, maybe we made a mistake. It's just. I also like the scene where Julianne Moore makes her first appearance where she's like nude flying over this canvas, making a painting. Oh, with all the paints. Yeah. She has never shied away from nudity. That's no. for sure. Right. And, yeah. and the thing is, the, then she comes down off that, that, that harness and the way she talks, the accent and sort of the staccato way she delivers her lines. It reminded me exactly of a girl that I did a play with back in 1992. She had the exact same character, it seemed. The actress I worked with, her name was Christine Devine. She was a fantastic actress. So amazing to work with. Anyway, it just, it just a little bit of a personal note. I just wanted to mention, but Julianne Moore just reminded me of her, but I I thought that scene was pretty good too. So I have a question for you. Come on. What was Sam Elliott's purpose in this film? Just to act as a narrator? Yeah, that's, that's just one of those weird, weird things where it's like he starts off as the narrator at the beginning and the end, and then he actually appears in the middle of the movie in the bowling alley at the bar. And, and he says, you know, dude, I like your style. And he's like, Oh, I like your style too. And it's like, so I don't know if these characters are supposed to know each other or if hmm. it's like if he's supposed to be the omniscient narrator that knows everything. Yeah, it's sort of like it's just one of these weird quirks where it's not really explained, but it doesn't really matter. And you can interpret it however you want. And I don't think there's a right and wrong answer so much, but uh, it's it's interesting anyway. It, it certainly it certainly gives the movie additional character. Also, another thing I'm thinking about, what was the meaning of the tumbleweed? At the beginning of the film, because that's how the film opened up. And and I tried to figure out if it was like there was an allegory there, but I just I kind of came up empty. Yeah, I don't know. I, there could be there. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. There's, so there was there's a lot of questions in the film, too. But I guess that's part of its appeal. It could be it could be I, I'm just sort of on the spot thinking about it. It could be like reflective of the mm-hmm. idea that it's it's. um you know, it's it's free of restriction. It, you see it blow through the whole city and all the way to the beach and onto the into the ocean. It's like maybe it's sort of the idea that it's just a free spirit, just like these guys in the movie, like the dude. It's like, yeah, he's just going to do what he's going to do. And he's he's not going to be restricted by the things around him. I don't know. It's, yeah. I mean, when I first saw it at the beginning, I, I assumed this is an allegory for the, the lead character. He's just mm-hmm. like kind of tumbling through things. Yeah. And like, I don't know, but I just, I had trouble connecting that. Um, do you want to give this movie a rating out of 10? Oh, uh, I'm probably going to go with about a seven and a half. I was, I've been listening back to some of our old episodes and, and you're, you often ask me what my ranking is. And I, I mean, I like this. It's, it's got a lot to like, but, uh, I think I need to be a little more conservative on this one, just knowing some of the other movies I've given eight and eight and a half. So I'm going to go with seven and a half. I would also give it a seven and a half. Yeah. So tell your wife to put that in her pipe and smoke it. Yeah, I should have taken that bet. I'd be a hundred dollars yeah. richer. But yeah, no, I think she, seven and a half is is a good place to be with this. Yeah, movie. no, this, this is this is a good movie. It's it's a lot of people love it, and uh, I I think it's one of those ones that is rewatchable to a certain extent. Again, I, I wouldn't want to sit down and rewatch it again next week, but no, six I, months, I, I a year from now, if it yeah. comes on, I'll probably watch it again. I, I, you yeah. know, I, I find every time I watch it, I find a new little detail out of it. And there's just something in there that I, that I pick up that I didn't get the time before. And there's a lot of really good scenes in here that just, they make me laugh they make me smile that it's entertaining. I like it. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for you to open my eyes up to some new stuff for me. So it new, it's 25 new years stuff, old. 25 years old. I've never seen it. Yeah. So it's new for okay. me. All right. On that note, let's do this. Fun with caveman. Okay. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about slackers in pop culture. Okay. All right. Cause this movie, like they taught, like we know we argued about it at the beginning. Is he a slacker? Is he not a slacker? All that stuff. But you know, I think if you ask a lot of people, like, who's the biggest slacker in pop culture, they might mention this guy. I think that's that's fair to say. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about some other slackers. I'm going to give you the character's name. And you have to give me the title of the pop culture entity that he comes from. Okay. Or her for that matter. So whether it's a movie or a TV show, you just got to give me the title. Okay. So we're going to make it easy. We're going to start with an easy one here. Jeff Spicoli. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's correct. All right. Another easy one, Garth Algar. Oh, that's uh, Wayne and Garth. That's Wayne's World, parts one and two. And, uh, and you know, speaking of which, 
I feel like I just, I just need to just, I just got to step away for a second here. I just got to go over here and I'm going to, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to, I want, I feel like I want to jump on the drums for a second and do something for you. So just hold on. I do there okay well i am worried that you're gonna get divorced because i know your kids are sleeping upstairs so uh wake everyone we, we better wrap this up quick before your wife comes no, down with a hatchet because i'm she sure she's ready that. to kill you okay so i'm going to give you the next character and again you got to mention the movie or tv show they come from all right or whatever kumar patel um uh, oh that's uh harold and kumar go to white castle Yes, I would have also accepted Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, I was going to say they did the a inferior bunch. 2008 sequel, or even a very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Right. They apparently did that, too, in 2011. Yeah. All right. It was good. Here's one. John Bender. Uh, that is, um, oh, that's uh, The Breakfast Club. Here's an easy one for you. Randall Graves. Randall Graves. Oh, Randall Graves. Oh, my God. I, the name is like, I can picture it. I just can't think of the movie. Randall Graves. I don't know. I can't think of the movie. Dude, it's from Clerks. Oh, I, I knew I could picture him. I just yeah. couldn't. Fix. All right. Peter Gibbons. Peter Gibbons. Oh, that's from Office Space. David... Wooderson. David Wooderson. Yeah, David Wooderson. What what slacker is that? I don't know. It's Matthew McConaughey's character in Dazed and Confused. Oh, saw it once, didn't like it. All right. I wasn't a big fan of it either. All right, here's one. Jughead Jones. Wasn't Jughead from Archie? Threw a little bit of a curveball. It's uh, okay. comics. There we okay. go. Okay. All right. Barry Judd. Where's Barry Judd from? He's a slacker. Jeez. I, I doesn't sound familiar. I don't know. High Fidelity in 2000 was Jack Black's character. Oh, again, right. saw it once, didn't like it. All right. This one you should get, I think. Hoops McCann. Yeah, that's uh, John Cusack in One Crazy Summer. All right. Earl Hickey. Where is Earl Hickey from? Earl Hickey. The only Earl I can think of is from uh, My Name is Earl. Yes. Nice. He was a slacker. Yep. Yep. All right. Moocher. Moocher. What slacker is Moocher? That sounds like uh, maybe Animal House. I'm sorry. It was Breaking Away. In 1979, Jackie Earl Haley's character. You ever seen Breaking uh, Away? No, I never even oh, heard of it. Dude, it is fantastic. Wait, is that the bicycle movie? Yes, it's so good. That's yeah, I hard. think I did see that. All right, and is this the last one I got here? Let me just make sure it's the last one. It is the last one that I got. All right, John Blutarski. That's Animal House. Yeah. He goes by Bluto all movie, yep. but until the end. When the credits are rolling, they show what happens to the characters. Isn't he like a senator or something? Yeah, senator and Mrs. John Blutarski. All right. So uh, you did pretty good. So next time it's over to me to pick a film to review. Got to be one and celebrating a major milestone. I was going to say, have you seen any movies that are celebrating a 25th anniversary? Uh, no, I think I'm going to go back no. further than that, Derek. That seems about your speed. I want to go back 45 years. We're going all the way back to 1978. There was a time back then. When Warren Beatty wasn't just this good-looking actor who slept his way through Hollywood. Oh, no. 
he was actually one of the most talented filmmakers there for a while. And uh, he gets a lot of cred for directing Reds in 1981. He was nominated for like a boatload of Oscars for that. But before that, in 1978, he directed and starred in a film that was also critically acclaimed and was nominated for a boatload of Oscars. And that is the film I want to go back and review. It's Heaven Can Wait. Are you familiar with it at all, Derek? Uh, I've never seen it. I've heard of it. I'm sort of loosely familiar with the general premise, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I've never seen it. And I've heard good things about it, but it's, again, I'm not a huge Warren Beatty fan. And mm. you know me, this 78, like I was only four years old. Oh, so a little ago. before my time, yeah. but, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll dig it up. I'll go back and right. uh, I'll give it a try. I mean, I just watched Bugsy not too long ago with uh, Warren Beatty and I did That's not like right. it. Right, You mentioned that was yeah. not a fan of that one. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this is definitely a better work. Uh, he's, he, it was, he's it was obviously critically like, acclaimed. It was a huge box office hit. It was like, it was good. It was good. Well, I want to see if you like it. So heaven can wait next time that we come back. So until then, this is Chris McBride on behalf of myself and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.